If you came in, hopefully you've already received the Attributes of God handout. If you've not picked up one, if you will grab one, they're on the music stands in the back, and there's pens back there if you need a pen as well. hope this will be a tool for you to help you as we think through these imponderables about who God is and his attributes and his natures. Now, last week, we talked about the omnipresence of God. That was week number five. And so the omnipresence of God, that was the big attribute, that God is where? Do you remember? Everywhere, yeah, God is everywhere. And I hope you thought on that attribute this week and just found comfort and hope in that, that no matter where you've been, God is right there with you. Tonight we come to another attribute that God does not share with us. Remember, there's some attributes that God shares with us. There's attributes that God does share with us. We're still talking primarily about the attributes that God does not share with us. Do you remember what that, that type is called? What's the big term? Incommunicable, that's right. These are the attributes that God does not share with us that are unique to him. And these make our minds hurt a little bit. Not a little bit, a lot, right? Because they're so different than our experience. They're something that is so hard for us to understand. So tonight you see there on your handout, week six, we're coming to the idea that God is unchanging. And yes, this is incommunicable because I am changing and you are changing. And we change not just a little bit, we change a lot. I mean, just thinking about this, and it's so ironic because yesterday... I went from the day is absolutely amazing to the world is falling apart and I'm mad at people to I feel all alone to God is amazing. Look at all the blessings I have. And that was all in the course of about three hours. You know, I am so changing, but God is not changing, thankfully. As we begin to think about it, you see a quote from St. Augustine here. He was an important church father, a bishop from the 1400s. And this is from his confession, just to kind of help our brains hurt as we think about who God is tonight. He says, you, my God, are supreme, utmost in goodness. Mightiest and all-powerful, most merciful and most just. You are, here it is, unchangeable, and yet you change all things. You are never new, never old, and yet all things have new life from you. You're ever active, yet always at rest. You gather all things to yourself, through though you suffer no need. You support, you fill, and you protect all things. You create them, nourish them, and bring them to perfection. You seek to make them your own, though you lack for nothing. You love your creature, but with a gentle love. You treasure them, but without apprehension. You can be angry and yet serene. Your works are varied, but your purpose is one and the same. And I love this. You are my God, my life, my holy delight. But is this enough to say of you? Can any man say enough when he speaks of you? Yet woe betide those who are silent about you, for even those who are most gifted with speech cannot find words to describe you. So if your brain is hurting a little bit through this study, you're not alone in that. Here's St. Augustine, this brilliant thinker of the early church, and he's saying, you know, even the most gifted speakers can't find the right words to describe you, God. And I love those questions. Is this enough to save you? Can any person say enough when he speaks of you? And so to try to understand how to speak of God, we run to the scriptures. We are so dependent on him, we need his word to understand who he is. So look there at Psalm 102. Look at what God has shown us about his unchangeableness. Of old, you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. He will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But here it is. Here's what we're focusing on tonight. You are the same. We already talked about this. Your years have no end. But notice this in verse 28 here. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. Like I've tried to mention over and over, these attributes aren't just coffee shop discussions. These have real life application to how we live. And here you see it. You are the same and we now dwell secure. So I hope you see tonight something about God being unchanging. I hope you will see the hope that we have as God's people as we think about God being 
unchanging. Now let's jump into understanding that God is unchanging. A.W. Pink, who calls it not unchanging, he calls it immutability. Talk about that in a minute. He says this, immutability is one of the divine perfections which is not sufficiently pondered. I think he's right. I mean, when was the last time you sat around thinking about the fact that God doesn't change? I thought about it this week because, well, I was teaching on it, but I can't tell you the last time I just sat around and pondered and marveled the fact that God doesn't change like I changed. I think Pink is right. We don't think about this attribute often enough, but we're going to seek by God's grace to do that tonight. Now, to begin, before we jump into God being unchanging, we need to remember God's unity. So think all the way back to week one of our study here, the fact that God is unified. Does anyone remember what does that mean? Anyone have any memory of week one? And it's a while back. God is unified. That God is not divided into parts, right? He's not one attribute sometime, another attribute other time. He's fully all the attributes all of the time. But also in that, we saw that all the attributes help explain the other attributes. They're all linked together. So this attribute we're talking about tonight, God's um, being unchanging, is related to God's eternality. Remember God being eternal? That God is outside of time. He's not bound by time. And so if we see that God is unchanging, these are necessary together because if God is in time, he has a succession of moments, and that means those moments could change him, but God is not changed by time. He is outside of time. He's eternal, therefore he is also unchanging. He's unchanging, therefore he is also eternal. These go hand in hand. We also need to realize that this attribute of God being unchanging is related to God's independence, that God doesn't need anything That means nothing can move God, nothing can change God. There's no force that can work on him to change him because he needs absolutely nothing. So as we think about God being unchanging, this is not in a vacuum. We're talking about this attribute of God in light of his eternality, in light of his independence. You see me quote Herman Bavink a good bit. He's a theologian I enjoy. But he links it to even more attributes than those two that I mentioned. He says this, every change is foreign to God. In him there is no change in time. For he is eternal. No change in location because he's omnipresent and no change in his essence for he is pure being. So I hope you see how all these attributes begin to link together and make our brains hurt here that God who needs absolutely nothing also is unchanging. So how do we define the fact that God is unchangeable? Well, different people as we see each week to have different attempts on the limitations of our language to try to describe God's nature. But here are four attempts to describe the fact God is unchanging. First, A.W. Tozer It's so simple and love this. Always, 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 God acts like God. I was like, what a great definition. God is always, always, always God. He just is always going to be who he is. He's always going to do what he always does. Always, 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 God acts like God. Herman Bavink goes a little bit deeper. He says, he does not change with respect to his being, nor with respect to his knowing or willing. He ever remains himself. So part of what we see here on God being unchanging, he's always true to himself. His nature does not change change. His thoughts do not change. He is always, that was a nice kickball hitting the door, by the way, if you're curious what's going on out there. There's a good kids game going on out there. Um, But he, God does not change. He's always true to himself. A.W. Pink says, God is perpetually the same, subject to no change in his being, attributes, or determination. Therefore, I love this, God is compared to a rock. Now, he quotes Deuteronomy 32, 4, which says, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness. What a great image for us, but Pink goes on. He's compared to a rock which remains immovable when the entire ocean surrounding it is continually in a fluctuating state. Because God has no beginning and no ending, he can know no change. You see that picture there? If you think about the the changes of the ocean and the waves crashing, but there's that unmoving rock. 
God is like that, but even more so because we know those rocks erode away with time. But God doesn't change. No matter what's happening in your life, how matter, no matter how changing you are, how matter changing the circumstances around you, God himself is that rock who is unchanging. Now, my favorite definition, so no surprise, once again, is Wayne Grudem. I love the way he brings balance to these definitions. He says, God is unchanging in his being, perfections, purposes, and promises. Yet, here's the balance, God does act and feel emotions and he acts and feels differently in response to different situations. So this brings the balance of God is unchanging. He's always God. But he also responds differently in different situations. And we will talk more about that in just a minute. Now, other terms you may hear used for this attribute, probably the most common is that first one, immutability. There's your big word if you want to have a fun conversation at the water fountain tomorrow at work. Talk about we're studying the immutability of God. Immutability just means he doesn't change. If you think of mutation... A mutation is a change. Immutability means no mutations, no changing. We can also sometimes call this God's constantness, that God is always consistent. He's always constant. He does not change. Some people would label this his faithfulness because he's always going to do what his nature is. He's always going to be like he has said he will be. Now, as you think about this, an important truth with this attribute, but really all the attributes, this truth is revealed, not reasoned. You know, the reason why we're talking about the, the God is unchanging is not because we've looked at random passages of Scripture and tried to deduce these ideas. This is how God has revealed himself to us. He's told us that he is unchanging. So I want you to see that because that's so important here, that God has revealed to us his nature. We've seen all along God wants to be known, and so God reveals himself to us and says, this is who I am. We're not left guessing and pondering and trying to put pieces together on this. He's shown us this is who he is. So the first one here. He's Numbers chapter 23, verses 19 and 20. Now, before I read it, the context here is there's a complaint that Balaam, who gave an oracle, there's a complaint that he should have cursed the people instead of blessed the people. And so Balaam responds here and basically said, God's already pronounced a blessing, and so God's not going to change his mind. When people are pressuring him to say, hey, this isn't how it should be, he points back to the fact God is unchanging. So here's Numbers 23. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Now again, notice how this attribute is shown as being incommunicable here. Notice the contrast with us. We are people, we lie, we are people, we change our minds. Again, I told you yesterday I was that, that roller coaster of emotions of good and bad all in the course of three hours. And God is never like that. He doesn't change like we do. He's so different than us. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 29. This is the context of Samuel has just told Saul that God is going to remove him as king. And he's basically saying, God doesn't regret doing this to you, Saul. Why? Because his purposes do not change. God had a purpose for Israel. You have broken that. So God, because he's consistent with his purpose, is now going to remove you. 1 Samuel 15. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. Why? For he is not a man that he should have regret. So God's about to do this hard thing and remove Saul, and he's saying God doesn't regret doing this because he has an unchangeable purpose that he is committed to because God does not change. See this in Malachi chapter 3 verse 6. It says, for I the Lord do not change. Okay, friends, this is revealed, right? God has been very clear to us on this. He says, I do not change. Therefore you, O children of Israel, you're not consumed. Yes, they have sinned. Yes, they have rebelled against God. But he's saying, I have a purpose and I am unchanging. I will make sure my purposes happen. That's why you are still here, though you are sinners, is what he is telling them right there. But then if you look at other scriptures, this unchangeableness of God applies to, is applied to Christ. Hebrews 13, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and 
forever. It doesn't get much more clear than that, does it? That he is unchanging in who he is. And you see this applied to the Father as well in James 1.17. <clears throat> Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, gnosis, with whom there is no variation. Friends, my life is full of variation. <clears throat> Your life is full of variation in our thoughts and our emotions and our good days and our bad days and what we do and what we don't do. We are constantly varied, right? Not God. There's <clears throat> not just a few variations. There are no variations or shadows due to change. God does not change. Now that starts to raise lots of questions for us. So before we answer those questions, let's clarify how Scripture reveals to us in what ways is God unchanging. And there's really three. These are the three fundamental ways we say that God is unchanging. Number one, he's unchanging in his being, in his very essence of who he is as God. And with that are his attributes, because his attributes are part of his being. So for example, his name that he reveals in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God is just God, and he will always just be God, and he is unchanging in his nature. He's unchanging in his attributes. He is who he is, and he, as we've seen, he always has been. There was a time when there was no time, and God was the same then as he is now, and he will be for all eternity. He can in no way grow. God can in no way improve, because in his essence, his being, his attributes, he's always perfect, fully God all of the time. And Herman Bavink says it this way, whatever changes ceases to be what it was, but real being pertains to him who does not change. That which really is remains. God is not subject to change as every change would indicate a decrease in his being. So he said, oh, God has learned more today than yesterday. That would indicate that his knowledge wasn't perfect yesterday. So change indicates some type of deficiency, either better or worse. And that cannot be with God. He's fully perfect. So therefore he is unchanging. You see this in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. This is question four of that famous catechism. It says, God is a spirit. Infinite, eternal, here it is, unchangeable in his being, his wisdom, his power, his holiness, his justice, his goodness, and his truth. Notice all those attributes and how they're all linked to the fact he's unchanging, that God is always unchangingly good. God is always unchangingly truthful. He's always unchangingly holy. God is always himself all of the time. He will always will. So he's unchanging in his essence, his attributes. Number two, he's unchanging in his purposes and his will. This follows, if he's unchanging his nature, so are all of his plans unchanging also in what he wants to do because his plans flow out of his nature. So, for example, Psalm 33, verse 11, the counsel of the Lord shall stand forever, the plans of his heart to all the generations, that he doesn't change his, his plans of what he's doing in the world. And also, henceforth, I am he, there is none who can deliver from my hand, I work, and who can turn it back. And the answer is implied there, no one can. If God wills something, no one can turn it back or stop him. His purposes and will will always happen. Now we see this as well in a text that we look at probably most weeks. I feel like I've quoted this one almost every week, but this is a, such a rich text, Isaiah 46, on the attributes of nature of God. He says, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. And I love this, declaring the end from the beginning Declaring from ancient times things not yet done. This is saying, my counsel shall stand and I might accomplish my purpose if people cooperate. No, I will accomplish. I shall. I certainly will accomplish my purpose. God's not in heaven going, I hope this is going to work out if my people will just cooperate. God is independent. He doesn't need us for anything. Therefore, he can say with certainty, I'm going to declare the end. And because I'm sovereign, it will happen. 
He's not dependent upon us, circumstances, anything. He needs nothing. He doesn't even need us. I love how, again, Herman Bavink says it. This made me stop and think, God never made a new plan. I, just, I don't know why that one just struck me so funny this way, but God never made a new plan. I plan, and I change my plans, and I change my plans again. And some of you have heard me kind of griping a little bit. I've been on jury duty the last two weeks, so I can't even plan the next day until I get on the website and see if I'm called in. So I plan, and then I change my plan, and it changes again. God has never made a new plan. Now, sidebar, this will be a conversation for a whole nother night. That has so much implications for our understanding of why he created humanity. Christ's coming is not some plan B. God's not up in heaven being like, oh, oops, I didn't realize I was going to put a tree in the garden. Oops, I didn't realize they were going to eat it. What do I do to fix that now? Oh, let's scramble in heaven and find a plan. God had a plan for Christ to come before he even made the world. He had a plan to show his glory before he made the world. Therefore, he makes a world where all this happens because he had a plan for his fullness of his glory to be seen. So that's a whole other conversation for another day. But God's purposes are not plan B. He has a sovereign plan from the beginning. So God is unchanging in his being. He's unchanging in his purposes. Number three, you see it there on page three. He's unchanging in his promises. But this I particularly mean his covenant faithfulness, his promises to his people. We read that from Malachi 3 earlier. Despite their disobedience, God was faithful to his promise. And we're going to see that at the end of, of uh, Micah here as well. Micah chapter 6, sorry, Micah chapter 7, verse 19. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. And so the prophets can say to God and to the people, God will do what he said he will do. God is unchanged. If he committed this in the past, he will do what he said he will do. You see it in the Psalms, in Psalm 89. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. And so people can trust that God will do what he said he would do for them. And I love this from Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13 to 20. You just see the absolute faithfulness of God, his unchangeableness here. Hebrews 6, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater, don't miss that, he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and all their disputes and oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the, notice this, the unchangeable character of his purpose. Let that sink in there. God wanted to show to his people the unchangeable character of his purpose. He guaranteed it with an oath. So by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus is going as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So we can trust in God. He is unchanging in his being, in his purposes, and in his promises. Now, in all these attributes, you'll see a page that says, but wait. Because when we start wrestling with these things, some immediate questions start coming up as we start trying to put all this together to understand. The first question is, does God feel and act differently in different situations? We've just seen all this revelation in Scripture that God is unchanging. Does that mean he will always do exactly the same thing? And the answer is no. That's not what we mean by God being unchanging. 
The reality is God feels and responds differently to different situations. So God is unchanging in his character. He's unchanging in his essence. He's unchanging in his attributes. He's unchanging in his purposes. He's unchanging in his promises. But he will respond differently to different situations. The unchanging God has different responses to the changing world that he has made. So for example... We see God express in some places joy. Zephaniah chapter 3. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. But this is the same God who also expresses grief to those same people. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. So there are situations where God is responding to his people with joy there's other situations where God, the unchanging God is responding to his people with grief. You can see another contrast. You see sometimes God responding to his people with delight. Isaiah 62, 4, for the Lord delights in you. But the same unchanging God also shows anger to his people. Exodus 32, verse 10. This is now when they've made the golden calf instead of worshiping him. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, nor them may make a great nation of you. Speaking to Moses here. God, though God is unchanging in his nature, he responds to changing situations with different responses. But don't miss this. Those different responses are a reflection of his unchanging nature. Okay, so this makes your brain hurt a little bit. So God always will delight in his people pursuing him. And God will always delight in that. And God will always forever grieve rebellion of his people. God will always forever love holiness. And God will always forever hate sin. And so when we see, well, why is, is God changing? He's showing joy here and anger here. No, his character is not changed. He always delights in holiness. He always hates sin. And so when he sees sin, he responds consistent with his character always. And when he sees his people loving him and loving holiness, he responds a certain way. These aren't God changing. God is consistent. The situation around it is changing. Therefore, he responds consistent with his nature to those things. And make your brain spin a little bit on that. His unchanging nature is reflected in his changing responses to the changing situations here. You can chew on that when you go to sleep tonight. God's unchanging nature is reflected in his changing responses to the changing situations here. And this is huge, friends, because this means God is not indifferent to our changing situations. So yesterday, when I was this roller coaster of mad and delight and feeling alone and feeling greatly part of a community, when I needed discipline from the Lord, God didn't, God didn't change in me, or excuse me, God, God changed me, he didn't change. God corrected me when I needed correction in my thinking, and then I felt the affirmation of the Lord when he forgave me. There's, God didn't change. He loves it when I repent, and he hates it when I turn my back on him. Same for you. God is unchanging. That means he's not indifferent to our changing situations. He's aware of our ups and downs, and he's always ready to meet us consistent with his character. So does God feel and act differently in different situations? Yes, not because he's changing, but because he's an unchanging God who always responds to his world appropriately according to his unchanging character. Okay, you can chew on that one more later. I know that's a hard one to try to think through. But that leads to number two, does God change his mind? Well, some passages in the scriptures talk of God relenting or God being sorry. Okay, so now we have to interpret scripture with scripture because we just saw <coughs> a whole list of passages that showed that God does not change. God himself reveals over and over, I do not change, I do not change, I do not change, I do not change. Now, what do we see? Genesis 6, 6. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him, okay? How about Exodus 32? This is, again, in the context of the golden calf. 
God's angry at their sin. He tells Moses he's going to destroy them. Moses intercedes. So what does God do? And the Lord relented from the disaster he had spoken of, bringing on his people. So we saw that earlier, Exodus 32, 10 at the top. Leave me alone that my wrath may burn against them. And now four verses later, the Lord relents from doing this when Moses prays. Or 1 Samuel 15, the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Or how about this Jonah? You know this story. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God relented of the disaster he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Okay, how do you put all that together? God has said, I don't change. And here he just says, I relent. I'm sorry. I'm grieved over things I did. So how do we understand that? Two things here to try to help us understand. Number one, our translation of the word relent and sorry come from the same word in the Hebrew. That's this word nakam. Nakam indicates a feeling that a person has towards a situation. Nakam reflects God's feelings to the current changing situation that he is observing. God is not changing in his nature He's not changing his attributes. He's not changing in his being. But as he looks at the changing world around him, he's expressing with language we can understand his feelings towards that situation. Again, God always hates sin. God always delights in people worshiping him. And so God is not changing in that sense. We see his response from his unchanging nature may be different because he is unchanging. So these feelings simply reflect God's unchanging nature. When God is angry at sin, it is simply a reflection of his unchanging nature. When God is grieving, it is a reflection of his unchanging nature. God always loves holiness. God always loves it when people respond to him. God always hates sin. He is unchanging, and so depending on what people are doing, he will respond differently. Number two, though, this is really important here. Relenting of promised judgment is tied to conditional prophecies. Okay, let's give a little background here. There's a big word we call hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is a stu- of how you interpret Scripture. It's a phenomenal study. It's one we taught a long time ago here that we should probably bring back at some point. But hermeneutics is, is how do you understand Scripture? Because how you read a parable is different than how you read historical narrative. It's different than how you read a prophecy, which is different than how you read poetry in the Bible. There's different genres in the Bible, and how you read them is different. So you don't go to the Psalms and read them the same way you read the Proverbs. You don't read the Proverbs the same way you read Jesus' parables. There's different ways you understand the different genres of Scripture. And so we try to explain this. We teach you different parts of the, of the Bible here. But when you come to the prophecies, <clears throat> and there's a prophecy of coming judgment, implied in every prophecy of judgment is the, whether sometimes it's written, sometimes it's not, there's always this built-in promise, but if you repent, the judgment will stop. Why? Because God delights always when his people repent, and God always is grieved when his people do not. So when you see these prophecies in the Bible, I'm going to wipe out my people, like in Jonah. And then they don't, he doesn't wipe them out. Did God change? No. Built into that promise of destruction was the built-in promise that he would relent if people repent here. So, for example, it's spelled out for us in Jeremiah chapter 18. Then the word of the Lord came to me, <coughs> excuse me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as the potter has done, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. So just pause there. You see the absolute sovereignty of God on display here. He's saying, I can do whatever I want to do. We're the clay. (coughs) Excuse me. He is the potter. He's going to say, if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, that if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plan it, and it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I intended to do to it. 
So what God is saying here, when, he, when God says, I'm going to wipe you out, Nineveh, and then he doesn't, God's not unchanging in his purposes or his promises. From the beginning, his heart was for people to repent and to turn. And so when they do, his relenting was simply him doing what was consistent with his nature from the very beginning. That also means, though, when God blesses a people, they can't count on that forever if they ignore God and turn from him. Because built in that promise of blessing is, I will discipline you and I will remove that blessing if you start to ignore me and so this is all consistent god does not change in his nature but because we change as people he may respond differently in that but that's not god changing that's god always doing what god always does in response to sin versus holiness i love how mark jones says it he says god does not truly repent for if such would imply sin or at least the need to change his mind about some previous course of action which would in turn contradict his infallible knowledge of all things as if something happened unexpectedly or took him by surprise. <clears throat> so God is never up in heaven like with the situation with Nineveh and Jonah. God wasn't in heaven being like, oh, wow, they repented. I didn't see that one coming. Okay, I better change plans now. Before God made the world, he knew they would repent. And how did he choose to bring the repentance? He chose to give them this prophecy of destruction to bring about the end that he wants. Remember, he declares the end from the beginning. And so he ordained the means and the end. And he used the promise of judgment coming to them to break them so that then they would repent and come to him. So God did not change in that, though we may use terms like relent, repent. God is unchanging these things. That means that God unchangeably hates sin. He will punish unrepentant sin. He will discipline sin in us because he's consistent in that. God unchangeably loves repentance. So he welcomes the vilest sinner when they run to him. And he welcomes us when we come back to him crying out for forgiveness when we sin. That's why when you think about all these things, I like the term relent more than repent. When we think of repentance, we're confessing sin. God doesn't have sin to confess. God relents, but that relenting is built into that prophecy. God uses those things to change us. So does God change? No, he is unchanging, but he will respond differently to different situations, reflecting his unchanging nature. Okay, number three here. Was Jesus unchanging? Okay, let's, let's wrestle with this one for just a minute. Because Jesus is fully God and fully man. So Hebrews 13, we read it earlier. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But Luke 2.52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Which one is it? Yes, both. So this is because Jesus is fully God and fully man. So in his divinity, and so Jesus is not half and half. Jesus is not like 50% God and 50% man in this weird hybrid thing. He's fully God and fully man. Again, if you're struggling to sleep tonight, there's another one to ponder because our brains can't comprehend this. This is so different than us. He's fully God and fully man. So in his fully Godness, he is unchanging. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He knows everything. He is all powerful. He has not given up any of his attributes. He's fully himself all of the time. But in his humanity during his earthly life, he put on human flesh. So he learned math the way you learned math. He learned to read the way you learned to read. He learned to walk the way you learned to walk. Yes, Jesus, God himself, who's unchanging, was a baby who could not walk, and his parents had to hold his hand and teach him how to pull up and crawl and walk. He's fully God and fully man. So was Jesus unchanging? Yes and no. He was unchanging in his divinity, but he was changing in the human flesh he was in, but he now has a resurrection body, so now Jesus is forever unchanging. I love how Mark Jones tried to describe this. The unchangeable Son of God took on changeable humanity, i.e. mutability, in order that we, mutable humans, might enter a state of immutability. Okay? I'm going to wrestle with that one a little bit more tonight, late at night. 
the unchangeable Son of God, and there's Hebrews 13, he took on our changeable humanity. So he was a baby. He learned to walk. He learned to grow. He learned to talk. He learned, he learned as we learned in that. And his humanity, while never giving up his divinity in this, he did all this so that we, mutable, changeable humans, might enter a state of immutability with him forever. That leads to number four here. Will we ever become unchanging? Yes and no on this one also here. How so? Let's look at Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So will we become unchanging in some ways? Yes. There'll be, we will enter eternity where there's no more sadness. We won't have those moments like me yesterday where I was sad and happy, sad and happy, sad and happy, back and forth all day. We won't have that. We will have all eternity where we are in joy and bliss with no tears, no pain, forever and ever and ever. So we'll be unchanging in that way. We'll be unchanging in our bodies, right? We won't, we won't be getting older. We won't be aging. We'll be forever the same for all eternity. But we're not fully unchanging because we've seen this before. We will always be learning more about God. Amen. It's not like when we get to heaven, all of a sudden we know everything there is to know about God and now we're bored for the next 10 trillion years, right? We've seen this. God is so infinite and so vast. There will never come a time they were, were not like I already knew that about God. We'll spend the rest of eternity marveling at how awesome and glorious he is. And so will we be unchanging? In some ways, yes. We won't have our emotional swings we have now. We won't have our good and bad days we have now. We will become more unchanging like that Mark Jones quote. But we will always be learning more about God. So we'll always be growing in the knowledge of him. So that is a yes and no question for us. In some ways, yes. In some ways, no. Now turn the page here. Last thing for tonight. What relevance does this doctrine have for us? Again, friends, one of my concerns when we start talking theology, I've seen this over the years at seminary, and I've seen it since then. We can get around coffee shop conversations. It's not bad to have coffee. I like having coffee. And to talk about God. But sometimes it gets all theoretical, and we miss how this changes us. And that's one thing is we keep wrestling with the attributes of God. This is not just some like, interesting theoretical knowledge for us to have. This is to drive change in my heart and your hearts. This is to cause us to marvel and ponder and live differently because we better understand who God is. So three ways I think this doctrine of God's immutability, his unchangeable, should affect us. Number one, and I alluded to this earlier, reminds us that God knows what we face and he cares about our changing experience. God being unchanging doesn't make him distant from us. You know, we see this over and over. God is imminent. He is different. He's huge, but he's also near. And so he's transcendent. He's different. He's imminent. He's near. We've seen that balance and all this. The fact that God is so different than us being immutable doesn't mean he's, he doesn't care about us. Rather, he cares greatly about us. And so he knows what we face. And he knows if, I, if I'm in a bad mood, he wants to bring me out of it. If I'm living in sin, he wants to convict me. He cares about our changing experience because he has an unchanging purpose for us. The unchanging God sees all of our changing experience and responds as he has promised to do. I love even what Jesus said in Matthew 6. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Why? Because he cares about us and he wants to reward us. He wants to discipline us when we err because he loves us. And so when you think about the immutability of God, it doesn't mean he's distant, doesn't care. It's the exact opposite. He is caring and close because he wants to be involved in your life and keep conforming you to his purposes like he said he would do. Number two is the basis <coughs> excuse me, for our ability to trust God's nature. Because this is huge. Can we trust God? And this attribute of God, his immutability means yes, 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 we can trust God. Love how Wayne Gruden put it. He said, if God is not unchanging, 
then the whole basis of our faith begins to fall apart. And our understanding of the universe begins to unravel. This is because our faith and our hope and our knowledge all ultimately depend on a person who is infinitely worthy of trust. Because he is absolutely and eternally unchanging in his being, perfections, purposes, and promises. Friends, do you realize how terrifying it would be if we served a God who was fickle? You realize how scary it would be if God's mood swings were like our mood swings? If God had good days and bad days like I have and you have, it would be absolutely terrifying because he's, he's omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He, he speaks and the whole world comes into being. If a God who has that power is having a bad day and decides, you know, I'm sick of these people and I'm not going to keep my promise to them, that would be terrifying. But the basis of our hope is the fact that we can trust God's nature. He is unchanging and he's always the same. That means, number three, very specifically, we can trust all of his promises. God never has good intentions that don't come to fruition. Do you realize that? You and I have good intentions that don't come about. I'm sorry, I forgot. God will never say that. Oh, I really want to, but I got too busy. God will never say that. Or like, hey, I meant to do that, but hey, I just really didn't want to do that anymore. God's never going to say that. God is unchanging. That means everything he said he will do, he will do. That means the glorious promises we love, like Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for good, or Hebrews 13, 5, that I will never leave you or forsake you, we can cling to those promises. But there also means, friends, and don't miss this, or the sobering part of that fact that God will consistently keep his promises. This guy, John Dick, was an 1800s pastor and theologian in Scotland. He said this, the divine immutability, like the cloud which interposed between the Israelites and the Egyptian army, has a dark as well as a light side. Now just pause there. We run to the light side, right? Oh, God keeps his promises. He's always with me and he's working good in my trial. We love to run to those, but there's promises that he keeps that we don't like to run to. He says it has a dark side and a light side. It ensures the execution of his threatenings. Don't miss that. The dark side of his promise means that God ensures the execution of his threatenings as well as the performance of his promises and destroys the hope which the guilty fondly cherish that he will be all lenity or so all lenity to his frail and erring creatures and they'll be much more lightly dealt with than he than the declarations of his own word would lead them to expect do you realize that the promise here he's talking about that so often in our hearts we want god to be like i know god said he hates sin but i don't think he really cares about this no God has said he hates sin, and he will do it. We think, oh, it's not that big of a deal. God's not going to really care. No, God has said, I will discipline you. I'll discipline you if you do not repent. So the dark side of this, dark not being evil, but dark being the good side that we just don't like here, knows this, it destroys the hope which the guilty finally cherish, that he will be all lenity to his frail and erring creatures, and they will be much more lightly dealt with than the declarations of his own word would lead us to expect. We oppose to these deceitful and presumptuous speculations the solemn truth. That God is unchanging in veracity and purpose and faithfulness and injustice. So just as God, we can trust God's promises in Romans 8 or Hebrews to us, we can trust the promise that God's going to discipline us in our sin as well. Rosemary Jensen, who's with Bible Study Fellowship, wrote a great book on praying the attributes of God. She said this, and I thought it's a great prayer in light of that. Lord, I confess that at times I don't want you to be immutable. I want you to change your laws so that I can do what I want without being guilty of sin. Now, I appreciate our honesty here, guys. Let me pause there. I think we all think that. We just don't say it quite that boldly, do we? I don't think most of us have prayed that, but this is what our lives show. We ultimately, I want you, God, to change your laws so that I can do what I want without being guilty of sin. I'm foolish enough to think that if I wait long enough, you might change something. 
please forgive me for not thanking you enough that you do not change. And for the security, notice that word, for the security that your immutability gives to me and to the world. Friends, if we just persist in our sin, God's not going to be like, yeah, okay, I get it. Yeah, it's okay now. God is unchanging, and that is a scary thing for us if we choose not to repent. So to bring all that together, I want to close with this quote from Herman Bavink tonight. He said, the Bible very positively denies any change in God's being. There's change round about him. There's change in the relations of men to God, but there is no change in God. God's majesty and the glorious character of the Christian confession is apparent in this, that God, though immutable in himself, is able to create mutable beings, us, that he, though eternal himself, is imminent in time, and that he, though transcending all spatial realities, is present at every point of space, that he, though he is absolute essence, is able to give a distinct existence to transient beings. That's what we've seen about God so far, and I hope that'll get your, your, your brain turning tonight as we think about how vast God is, yet how near he is. That God is unchanged, yet he steps into our changing experience to love us and correct us and encourage us with whatever is consistent with his nature and his purposes. So if you turn the page, we're about to break into our small groups, several different questions there for you. Lie this, I don't need to read them out loud to us, but I hope that you'll take them as you go to your small groups and talk about these and, and look at the application to real life and what we're talking about, about God being unchangeable. So as a reminder, if you want to stay as a couple, that's going to be in room one. Ladies, if you want to go just with ladies, that's in room two. And for the guys, we're going to be in room four tonight, like usual. So rooms one, two, and four in the gym building. God bless you all. Let's go have fun discussing more about God being immutable.